Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And listeners, this episode has it all. It's got space. It's got science. It has amazing women you've never heard of. And it also has the rage factor of the fact that you've never heard of them and the double rage factor of some (laughs) racist working conditions. There are literal highs. I'm talking like into space, space. into into space, highs Highs. and lows, i.e. racism and segregation. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, This episode is is. I hope as fascinating to listen to as it was for us to research, it really continues the theme that we started in our episode on Polly Murray last time of women who have sort of been buried by history. Women who played a huge part in our country's history, in this case, science history with Polly Murray, it was legal history and racism and segregation. But the thing is, in all of these amazing women's stories, for so many of them, there's still so little known. We have names, but it's taking a woman like Margot Lee Shutterly, who is publishing this year the book Hidden Figures, the untold story of the African-American women who helped the United States win the space race. It's taking Shutterly publishing a book and then attracting movie attention because it will be made into a movie next year to get these women some more attention. Yeah, and... We've talked before on Stuff Mom Never Told You about the the history of computing and how women were the first, quote unquote, computers doing the computer work, which was considered like low level clerical work. Um, but even in that knowledge that's only just now becoming more commonly known, at first the image was just of white women doing all of this computing. And now, thanks to... Shetterly and um, a couple of other researchers that she's collaborated with, we are learning about these women of color who are also doing computing work, but might have been segregated in separate working areas and who were critical in the case of what we're going to talk about today to the space race, to us even landing on the moon. Maybe space race should be the punny name of this episode. Space race. <laughs> race space. Um, but I mean, it's not like these women's stories were secret or unknown by any means. I mean, what's so fascinating and like mind boggling is that you'll see obituaries of some of these women. And it's like, you know, so and so passed away and she was a family woman and she like did some stuff for NASA and then she died. And you're like, what? Wait. And so, I mean, these women's lives and stories were no secret. I mean, Katherine Johnson, one woman who we'll talk about, was just awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama. So their their work is definitely being recognized. But we want to do our part as Sminty to dig into this history a little bit more and enlighten you. Yeah. So... Before we get into NASA, we've got to talk about NACA, <laughs> because the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics was the predecessor to NASA, and it was formed in 1915, which, by the way, was only a little more than a decade after the airplane was invented. Yeah, they, they got right on that. Yeah. They're like, uh, I feel like this is important. 
We should probably do something with this. So they were formed with the goal of furthering aeronautical research and in 1958 would become NASA. But first, in 1920, NACA sets up the Langley Memorial Research Center in Hampton, Virginia to study aircraft and eventually space flights. Now, geographical note that is important to, well, note Hampton, Virginia is also home to what was then called Hampton Institute, which is a historically black college that had started around about the Civil War to educate former slaves. And it grew into a university, which is still a historically black uh, institution. And many people in that college, in this case, lady people, funneled right from Hampton to NACA and Langley. Yeah, I mean, the the geographical location almost feels like destiny. Mm-hmm. And this was something that Margot Lee Shetterly, who author, well, is writing right now, Hidden Figures, um, notes because she grew up in Hampton, I believe, and talks about how there were a lot of African-American families who were in STEM careers all around her, it was very normalized. Yeah, well, her dad was also in science, and she she talks about how, yes, I knew black people who had any job, anything from like a shoe shiner to a teacher to a lawyer to a doctor, but so many of the African Americans in our community around us were in science and technology. And she said, I just, I thought it was what black people did. I thought you just went into science. And, and I love that tidbit because I feel like Kristen, anytime you and I talk about STEM topics, we always are very careful to point out how women entered the field in the first place because things like mentorship, people who inspire you as a young person to get involved in science, they're, they're critical. That's a critical role to inspire young people and to normalize a life spent pursuing science. And so I love that Shutterly has this normalization of science around her, as do some of the women we'll talk about. Yeah, and it traces all the way back to the Hampton Institute, which, by the way, was Booker T. Washington's alma mater. And Hampton Institute was uh, preceded by the efforts of an African-American woman of means to educate freed slaves, because originally in Virginia, there was a law passed, I believe, pre-Civil War, um, forbidding black people from getting educated. Yeah. So at great risk, this woman, I believe her name was Margaret Peake, yes. uh, started educating people. And the institution even educated a group of Native Americans who'd been prisoner elsewhere in the country and sent to Hampton. They're like, well, we, we don't know what to do with these people, so please educate them. So Hampton has an amazing and very rich history of educating people in this country. So in other words, it was the perfect place <laughs> for NACA to set up shop with the Langley Memorial Research Center. And in 1922, Langley hires its first woman, Pearl Young, who becomes an engineer and a technical editor at NACA. So she broke the gender barrier yeah. there. Pearl, yeah, Pearl was the first lady person. But as NACA is picking up steam, they need more people. What do we do? Well, I guess we get cheap women with their tiny little hands who can use the slide rules. So they began hiring women computers in the 1930s in earnest. But 
it's interesting to think about that they called it a computer pool in the same way that at a big office, for instance, you might have a stenography pool. These women could provide a lot of labor, do a lot of calculations for relatively cheap. And their primary task was to do all the calculating and computation that engineers had been doing for aircraft and later space missions in order to free them up for other aspects of research. And the engineers at this time were exclusively men. So the calculating and computation, including things such as reading film of manometer boards, which... That just makes me think of the Muppets. Menomina. <laughs> do, 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 do. So the Menomina boards <laughs> measured pressure changes during wind tunnel resistance tests and recorded that data on spreadsheets. And uh, honestly, this was the part of the research that took me right back to my high school physics class and uh, <laughs> angst washed over me. Well, um, I watched an interview with Christine Darden, who is a, another woman we will talk about later in the podcast. But as she's talking about spreadsheets, she's literally using hand motions of like indicating how big these spreadsheets were and that women just for hours and hours, day in and day out, 24 hours around the clock, were entering data in spreadsheets. And that just made my mind melt a little. Oh, God, it's like Excel, IRL. <laughs> By hand. So in addition to reading the Menomina boards, which it is Menometer (laughs) listeners. But I I prefer Menomina. I prefer Menomina as well. Uh, They also calculated rocket trajectories and safe reentry angles. And in analyzing the data, they would plot the results on graph paper in those giant spreadsheet booklets. And all this was done by hand. Not with their TI-83 pluses. <laughs> I had a TI-85 with Frogger on it. Whoa, it, you had a TI-85? Yeah, you know. Wow. I'm ritzy. Uh, it's the one time in my life, uh, when I was ritzy. Um, but yeah, they would, they would use tools like slide rules, magnifying glasses, and, and really basic calculating machines to get all of this done. But, you know, lest you think that all they were doing is writing stuff on spreadsheets. I mean, these women had to have a very specialized knowledge to do this. They ended up, a lot of these women ended up devising aeronautics and aerospace specific computing methods. And many went on to write papers and books of their own. So it's not like they're just sitting there day in and day out mindlessly calculating. These are brilliant people. And they were effective. They were collectively praised for calculating data more rapidly and accurately doing more in a morning than an engineer alone could finish in a day. Yeah, that's right, Lady Brains. (laughs) Powerful. (laughs) Well, when World War II hits, NACA needs more people to work to do these calculations, but the men folk are leaving. So what happens? There's a computer boom. They begin actively recruiting more women workers. They were advertising in trade journals and in pamphlets they sent to colleges and they sent recruiters out to college campuses. And some of those early women computers were even in the group 
who went to college campuses to try to be like, see, ladies, you can do math just like I can professionally. And they had a hand during this time in a lot of critical projects, ranging uh, from everything from World War II aircraft testing to transonic and supersonic flight research. And because this was happening during World War II, NACA was running 24-7, meaning that the computers, these women, would work in eight-hour shifts around the clock. So this is uh, disrupting the typical domestic setting for women at the time. But here's the thing, not surprisingly, just because these computers worked harder and faster and were oh so desperately needed, they weren't making equal wages as the fellas. But it was still gainful employment for women at the time. And this is echoing our podcast way back when now about secretaries, where it was like, Female secretaries would get paid so much less than male secretaries, but what the women made was still so much more than they could have made elsewhere. So similarly, in the 1940s, women computers were classified as sub-professionals and could earn between a whopping $1,440 and $3,200 per year. Meanwhile... Dudes were usually hired as junior engineers, classified as professionals, and started out with $2,600. And I keep in mind, though, that these quote-unquote sub-professional women still had to have at least a bachelor's degree. And many of them had already served as high school teachers for years and years before they entered this work. Many of them, too, as we'll talk about, were very unsatisfied with their teaching careers, but... Basically, like teaching and nursing were the avenues that were open, uh, particularly to women of color, as we'll get into in a bit. But this science work offered them an entirely new path and a path into aeronautics. Yeah. And quickly about the money too. a teacher would be making around five hundred fifty dollars a year. So in that context, this is good money, even though it's not equitable money. But that doesn't mean that there weren't progressive policies in place at NACA. Yeah, so we've talked a lot in previous episodes about uh, particularly teaching, but also other fields where at the time, uh, if you got married and or started a family, you were expected to leave. There were policies against hiring married women, especially pregnant women, um, because it was expected. Like, the home is where you're supposed to be. You're a woman. But NACA was like, we need you. You're so smart. Please stay. So... Very importantly, marriage and family-based discrimination was not a thing at NACA. They didn't have any of the whole, like, get rid of women when they get married. And in fact, after World War II, when so many women were forced out of the workplace once the men came home, NACA was like, no, 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 can you please stay? You're so smart. Can you please keep doing the math? Please do the math. Well, and several of those computers were also married to NACA engineers. So this like you said, provided women entry into aeronautics and provided an alternative and an exciting alternative if you were into science and math. And this wasn't just a job for white ladies. African-American women computers were part of NACA's hiring push. And we will introduce you to these women when we come right back from a quick break.
unfortunately, it did take a presidential executive order for African-American women to officially be part of NACA's hiring push. Um, because back in 1941, A. Philip Randolph, um, who was a tremendous labor and civil rights leader, pressured FDR into issuing Executive Order 8802. Yeah, which says there shall be no discrimination in the employment of workers in defense industries or government because of race, creed, color or national origin. So that just opens the hiring floodgates. And again, NAC is placing ads in papers, sending recruiters out. But this time they're putting ads in black communities, newspapers, and they were putting out ads for everyone from janitors to laborers to women with math and chemistry degrees. So this means that they're hiring smart African-American women, but this is also the era of segregation. So black women at Langley worked, ate, and even used the restroom in separate facilities in what was called the West Area. And they were referred to as the West Area Computers. And their facilities were so far removed from where the white computers worked. A lot of those women, the white women, didn't even know that the West Area computers existed. Yeah. And I mean, so while it's wonderful that all of these women of color were hired, I mean, it wasn't without its problems. For instance, if you were a single white woman, you got to live in really nice dorms at the facility. But if you were an unmarried black woman, you had to have the extra expense of finding a place to stay in town. And also the the lab was built on the side of a plantation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's unfortunate. But, I mean, what else are you going to do with all that land in Virginia, I guess, but build amazing science facilities on it? (laughs) But build rocket ships. Yeah, exactly. Just blast right on out of that past. But even within NACA, once they got in the door, obviously they were facing these uh, this segregation. And they also faced barriers to advancement compared to their white counterparts. Um, For instance, one woman hired to work in the chemistry division ended up being transferred to the all-black West computer division because black women weren't hired for that original chemistry spots. And this is ironic since African-American computers had to take a chemistry course at nearby Hampton Institute before starting their jobs. So they even had a higher bar that they had to cross to get in the door. Yeah. And so how did some of them end up moving up the ranks if they were segregated off in entirely separate facilities? Well, it was the black computers, those West Area computers who would be regularly, quote unquote, loaned to different branches of NACA when help was needed doing calculations or data processing. And eventually the computing divisions did become less segregated. And when NACA became NASA in 1958, those segregated facilities were completely done away with. And we've been talking about uh, the West Area computers as one kind of impersonal group. But now comes the fun part of the podcast where we get to highlight these individual women who were doing all sorts of of incredible trailblazing work. And one of the first we're going to talk about is Miriam Daniel Mann. And she was born in 1907 in Georgia, 
She was the valedictorian of her prep school, and then she graduated from Talladega College with a chemistry major and math minor. What up, STEM? (laughs) And she worked as a teacher for a few years. Then she and her husband moved to Virginia, where he gets a job at Hampton Institute. Destiny. Uh, in 1943, the same year that NACA puts out the call for workers of color, she hears about the job opening and lands a job. Of course, she and the other colored computers, as they were called, did have to take that chemistry class at Hampton, which is kind of a joke, considering how qualified these women already were. I mean, she's a valedictorian, chemistry major, math minor. This is no dummy. Um And the women were coming in to NACA with just as many qualifications as the men and still being paid less and how to take a course, blah. Anyway, uh, I love the hints of man's humor that we get from an account that her daughter wrote. Her daughter remembers Miriam bringing home the cafeteria sign that said colored. Uh, which, of course, then was replaced. But I love that she was like, nope, swiping this, <laughs> Ta- taking this away now. I, I hate segregation. Um, and once NACA became NASA, she was one of the computers who worked on that Mercury program making calculations for John Glenn's and Alan Shepard's flights. And next up, we've got to talk about Dorothy Vaughn, because Dorothy Vaughn was not going to let white women as managers stop her. So she was a prodigy, hands down. She was born in Kansas City in 1910. She graduated from Wilberforce University in 1929. And after working as a math teacher, yet again, we have the teaching coming first. She's hired by Langley in 1943 on the West Computers team. And in 1949, she became the first black manager of the West Computers. And she was called the Head Computer, I which is it. it's the coolest job title. I love it. Head Computer. Um, she was the first black manager, though, of the West Computers at that time, because before then, even the West Computers managers had all been white women according to policy. Right. Exactly. And so this makes her the first black manager at NACA period. And this granted her a much greater visibility and a lot more opportunities for collaboration. She worked with other computers on a handbook for algebraic methods and calculating machines. And I know that, you know, when you get to talking about managers, sometimes they can be jerks, but she was not one of them. This was a beloved both mathematician and manager. Because she advocated for the West computers, but she also intervened on behalf of women workers in general when they deserved promotions or raises, white or black. If you worked hard and deserved a raise, Vaughn was going to go to the mat for you. And the engineers valued her, too. They took her personnel recommendations seriously, but they often wanted her to be the one to work on the more challenging work and calculations when they had stuff to get done. They were like, oh, well, we really appreciate who you're recommending. Like, we, we trust you and we'll hire that person for this division. But could you do it? <laughs> Thanks, Dorothy. Uh, in 1958, NACA transitions to NASA, as we've mentioned, and the segregated facilities are shuttered. 
And this is when Vaughn and many of the former West computers are moved to electronic computing in the new analysis and computation division when NASA gets the machine computers. And Vaughn continues her education. She becomes an expert in Fortran, which is a computer programming language still in use today for scientific computing. Oh, and meanwhile, she's also raising a family, and one of her children grew up to work for NASA. Talk about awesome mom role model. I know. I love it. Uh, I love that there's, like, a NASA legacy in a family. Uh, it's just the family business, you know, NASA. Um, and then the next one we want to talk about is the amazing Katherine Johnson. She's the physicist and mathematician who worked with both Mann and Vaughn and who was recently awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, but she she was drawn to math from an early age. She would write later math. It's just there. You're either right or you're wrong. And that's what I like about it. And she also has told numerous interviewers that I counted everything. The steps, the dishes, the stars in the sky. And her family growing up was pretty poor, but they were so invested in Catherine and her siblings education and very encouraging of them. Um, and in school, she was a math prodigy and she was inspired by her geometry teacher, Miss Turner. Shout out to teachers and again, more mentorship. Um, and she graduated from high school at 14. But listen, her parents were so invested in Catherine and her schooling that because there was no high school for black children in her original hometown, her parents sent her and her siblings to a lab school on the all black West Virginia State Institute campus. Yeah. So, I mean, no small feat that this woman graduated from high school at 14. Yeah. And then she graduated from college with degrees in math and French at 18. Math and French. The brain is an amazing thing, especially (laughs) when it belongs to Katherine Johnson. Well, and she even had more mentorship in college. She was taught by Dr. William W. Shefflin Clater, who spotted her potential as a research mathematician. And he would go on to to achieve a degree of fame for his own research. And so, I mean, that reflects so amazingly on Catherine that she has this person helping guide her through her research. Uh, but in 1939, she was actually one of three black students selected to integrate West Virginia University's grad program. And she stayed just a year before getting married and starting a family. And there's a while here where she is raising her kids. She's teaching. But then in 1953, she ends up taking a computer job at Langley because the year before her husband had fallen ill and she needed to get back to work. She'd taken uh, time off from teaching math, French and music. So she gets in at Langley because of NACA's uh, recruitment efforts for its guidance and navigation department. And the first year, though, that she applied, they had already filled their quota. So she reapplied the next year and got in. So lesson learned, if at first you do not get the job, you can always reapply. Yeah, especially if you get to work under Dorothy Vaughn like she did. Yeah, and we are so lucky (laughs) that Katherine Johnson reapplied because... I mean, just weeks after she started in the computer pool, 
she starts to just start asking questions about, wait, why are all of the people on the research team guys? Wait, why aren't any of the women computers invited to these meetings? Is there a policy or law against me not being allowed to be here? No? Okay, I'm just going to be here. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, she... She credits this uh, habit of incessantly asking questions with being asked to fill in on the all-dude flight research team. She got to research airplane gust alleviation and wake turbulence. And in 1958, she moves from the flight mechanics branch to the spacecraft controls branch, whose job it was to get men into space like ASAP. And it's in that space research division where she seriously makes her mark. And she doesn't waste any time. In 1960, she becomes the Flight Research Division's first credited female author when she co-authors a report with equations that describe the trajectories for placing the manned Mercury capsule into low Earth orbit and bringing it back safely. And then in 1961, she calculated the trajectory that put the first American, Alan Shepard, into space. How am I 31 and just learning this Incredible women's history fact, Caroline. Well, and I love that she has no lack of confidence. When she's looking back on this uh, in 2008, she tells an interviewer, the early trajectory was a parabola, and it was easy to predict where it would be at any point. Early on, when they said they wanted the capsule to come down at a certain place, they were trying to compute when it should start. I said, let me do it. I just like to imagine <laughs> that that was her being like, oh, for God's sake. Uh, she says, you tell me when you want it and where you want it to land, and I'll do it backwards, and I'll tell you when to take off. That was my forte. Oh, what a smooth operator. Yeah, just be confident like Catherine. She's so confident. Uh, in 1962, despite the fact that actual computer machines by this point were being used to perform calculations, when it was John Glenn's turn to go into space and orbit the Earth in MA6, he specifically asked Johnson to run the numbers against what the computer had come up with. So in his pre-flight checklist, <laughs> he had, quote, have the girl double check the numbers. Yeah. And she said that she was very nervous, but I knew that my calculations were correct. And they were. So <laughs> over an ounce of Catherine's confidence. <laughs> Uh, and in the mid-60s, she worked on trajectories for the Lunar Orbiter Program, which mapped the moon's surface before the 1969 moon landing. Speaking of which, in 1969, she calculated the trajectory for the Apollo 11 flight to the moon. And it doesn't stop there. In 1970, she collaborated on the backup calculation that brought Apollo 13 astronauts home safely. So it is little wonder then that she was awarded the highest civilian honor with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in November 2015. And there's so many other women at NACA slash NASA slash Langley to mention, but so little has been known about them all these years. And that's actually something that Hidden Figures author Margot Lee Shetterly is working to rectify. She has teamed up with McAllister College researchers Duchess Harris, who is the granddaughter of Miriam Daniel Mann, one of the first computers, and Lucy Short on uh, what's called the Human Computer Project, which is their digital effort to document the lives and work of women who worked as computers at Langley. Mm -hmm. And so... 
there, I mean, there are names that we know that I just wasn't able to find enough information about women like Sue Wilder, Eunice Smith, and the very prolific writer and researcher Barbara Holly. All I know is her name, and I know that she researched a lot of stuff that my brain can barely comprehend. Um, but I just don't have that much background. One of those women also is Catherine Pedru, who graduated from Storer College in 1943 with a chemistry degree and went to work for NACA immediately. She retired in 1986, and she was involved in research on balance in the instrument research division. And that's about as much as I could find on Catherine. Well, and we have more information on women who worked at NASA uh, in more recent years, relatively. There's Melba Roy Mountain, who was a Howard University alum. She earned a master's in math, who became assistant chief of research programs at NASA's trajectory and geodynamics division in the 1960s. And she, I mean, at this point, too, consider how revolutionary it is that she is the head of a team. And not so long ago, you have Miriam Daniel Mann taking down the colored sign from the cafeteria. Yeah, spunk. I like it. (laughs) So Mountain leads a team of mathematicians who did the intense computational work of launching and tracking echo satellites in Earth's orbit. And Mountain held a lot of impressive jobs during her time at NASA. In 1961, she was promoted to head programmer in charge of the team that determined aircraft orbits in space. She actually designed computer programs to predict trajectories and aircraft locations before transitioning into the job that Kristen was talking about, that assistant chief of research programs. And finally, we're going to circle back to a name that you mentioned early in the episode, Caroline, uh, Christine Mann Darden, who was the first black woman at NASA Langley to be promoted into senior executive service. And her bio is fantastic as well, because going back to childhood, her interest in math was sparked exploring how bikes and cars worked with her dad, Rad Dad Alert. And here's another case of a kid whose parents really valued her education. They ended up sending her to a boarding school in Asheville, where a geometry teacher helped her fall in love with the subject. Just like Miss Turner, Catherine Johnson's geometry teacher. Yes, so important. I like geometry, too. I, I hope there are geometry teachers listening who feel very special right now. I also loved geometry. That was my favorite math in high school. I liked, now granted, I literally was tutored in math from the time I was in sixth grade to 12th grade because I am a word person. That's just how it shook out. Um, But I really liked algebra and geometry. Physics, not so much. And chemistry, I barely passed. So I am impressed with all these women, (laughs) to say the least. Um, But in 1962... Uh, Christine graduates from Hampton Institute with a bachelor's in math education and a minor in physics at just 20. And she starts teaching because the whole thing uh, that she talks about in that interview I watched, which I encourage you to Google, is that her father was so concerned about his daughter not having a job. And so he did what a lot of parents do. And he's like, um, I know you have this one interest, which is cool. And that's math. And that's awesome. However, can you please major in something that will actually let you get hired after college? So he strongly, strongly, strongly encouraged his daughter to major in education because, as she points out in the interview, like, you know, they're just 
there still weren't a ton of jobs open, like high paying jobs. And secure jobs open to women at the time. So she's like, I, as much as I loved math, I had to be prepared to do whatever I could to make a living and help support my family. And so she does teach for a while. But in the meantime, as she's teaching and still going to school, she's participating in lunch counter sit-ins. So she's participating in the civil rights movement at the same time that she's, you know, pursuing math and eventually going to shoot to NASA. Like a rocket ship. Like a rocket ship of awesome. So in 1967, after studying physics and math at Virginia State College, she earns her master's in math and she's hired for the Langley computer pool. But she is not going to remain in that pool. She needs to cannonball into the deep end. So in the 70s, as computers like machine computers like we think of today were starting to become a thing, Darden was one of the first to work on developing computer programs because she'd studied programming in her master's. So she began researching also sonic boom minimization. And after five years in computing and programming support, she, I mean, she just felt limited. She didn't feel like she had enough uh, knowledge of everything that she was working on. And also she hadn't gotten promoted so she was she was getting a little anxious to do some new stuff. Yeah. So in 1972, she complains to the section head about men who were coming in with similar credentials, but getting more opportunities for advancement. I mean, this is the same kind of thing that we're hearing from the very get go of women being hired first at NACA and then at NASA. So he transfers her to Sonic Boom research like yeah. like you do. Well, and I think that she had even suggested to him because she'd started doing Sonic Boom research on her own that that's the direction that she should go in. And her career path also echoes Katherine Johnson in the sense of speaking up, calling yeah. attention to what you know and what you would be good at. Yeah, incessant questioning. Very important. Uh, in 1983, she earns a PhD in engineering and becomes one of NASA's foremost experts on supersonic flight and sonic booms. And one of the most endearing things about Johnson and Darden's 10 years at NASA is how they were not only invested in their nine to five work, but also in outreach and encouraging girls in particular to get into STEM like they did. Yeah. Work that is so important. And I mean, yes, the the, the NASA work's important, but that outreach work and providing visible role models to children is so important. And that is something that NASA itself has highlighted. They put out a report in 2012 um, that looked at data stretching from 2008 to 2012 that found that women of color make up just five and a half percent of aerospace tech engineers. And they linked this to, quote, inherent biases and stereotyping that exist for women of color in the science and engineering workplace. In addition, they write there are challenges related to the lack of mentorship and isolation. And so they strongly encourage in this this report those same outreach efforts, but in an official capacity. So, yes, it's so important to have these visible figures like Johnson and like Darden. But Na- these, this NASA report is saying we have to continue our efforts to create a pipeline in the same way that having Langley next door to Hampton created a, you know, a figurative pipeline of people, geniuses to Langley. NASA still needs to continue to do that kind of work of encouraging 
boys and girls, but in this case, women of color to join their ranks and be among their researchers. Yeah, I mean, one astounding statistic uh, is that there are around 100 black female physicists in the U.S. A hundred. Wow. Yeah. So it's not just an issue at NASA. I mean, this is across the board um, in the U.S. and likely abroad as well, although uh, there are countries that are far better in terms of gender equity in STEM fields. But now we're curious to know who your STEM heroines are, and especially the unsung ones, because as you can probably tell, it really excites Caroline and me to learn about new, not new, but uh, women we should have known about a long time ago who are doing all sorts of trailblazing and brain powering. Yeah. So I encourage all of you, if you're at school or at work and you're starting to doubt yourself, I want you to ask yourself, what would Katherine Johnson do? She knew who she was. She knew what she was good at. And she was not going to stop asking questions or counting or counting. She just counted everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, you can email us momstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can also tweet us your thoughts at momstuffpodcast or send us a message on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I have a letter here from Sarah in response to our abortion episodes. She says, I love the show and love that you ladies are so vocally supportive of a woman's right to have an abortion if she wishes. However, there seems to be this narrative of the good abortion and more specifically the hard decision abortion that I find frustrating. Yes, there are many women for whom choosing to have an abortion is stressful, emotional, and heart-wrenching. But there are just as many women for whom it is a no-brainer decision. When I found out I was pregnant at 21, I didn't even have to think twice before calling an abortion clinic and making an appointment. I had been using contraception because I was not ready to have a child, and I had always known that I would abort in the case of an unplanned pregnancy. I feel like there is a cultural perception of the good abortion, and it includes hand-wringing with a long-term boyfriend or a high-stakes job or a traumatic situation, and that simply isn't always the case. Women should feel free and empowered to have an abortion simply because they don't want to be pregnant, which I'm sure you already know. So thank you, Sarah. Well, I've got a letter here from Sierra about psychic women, a line of employment far different than the NASA work we were talking about in today's episode. Uh, but she writes about how uh, she briefly worked as a phone psychic when she was having some trouble finding steadier employment. And she says, you would collect as much personal information from the caller as you could before launching into the reading in order to give your psychic forecast some degree of believable verisimilitude. And this may speak to why so many psychics are women. The people who ran the company I worked for were of the opinion that women were better at teasing out the nuggets of personal intel that were so crucial to creating a believable psychic experience. My callers were pretty evenly split between men and women, but both groups seemed more willing to open up to a female psychic and divulge personal details without suspicion that I could then work into my readings. I had a male roommate at the time who worked at the same company, and he had a harder time with callers getting aggressive when he asked personal questions. I didn't work as a phone psychic for long because it was a very sad job. I knew I had no psychic abilities, and most people who called were in desperate situations and just looking for someone to tell them it would be okay. 
I felt terrible about the fact that they were paying $3 a minute to get support during some of the darkest times of their lives, and the company's only directive to me was to keep callers on the line for as long as possible. I also felt exploited because it's emotionally draining to listen to the sad stories of strangers and concoct BS designed only to fleece them out of money, and I was only being paid 20 cents a minute. The emotional labor the job demanded, combined with a lack of financial security, was just too much, and I quit after a few months. Love the show. Well, thanks, Sierra, for sharing your experiences with us. And now, listeners, we want to hear what's on your mind. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about the incredible women of color who worked at NACA and NASA, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 